Hello and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be focused on discipleship and action. So this is another one that is mostly from a Christian perspective, but like the other episodes that we have been doing recently, there are a lot of crossovers and tie-ins to agorism and having a group of agorists or an agorist community or something of that sort. It is There are concepts, at least, that are very similar and strategies that are very similar. So going back to this idea for this season of looking at the early church as an example of a group of people that lived outside of the culture, outside of the state, outside of the systems of their day, and were very successful in building out their own community, their own systems, their their own structures, and living out their beliefs in that way. We, as people who are not very fond of the current state of today's culture, today's governments, today's systems as a whole, we want to do the same thing. So we're looking at these different aspects of how the early church viewed Christianity, how they were to live, how they were to create their community and interact with the world and the state. We're looking that at that as an example and as a parallel for us today. I will be speaking from the perspective of a Christian myself. So when I say we as Christians or a phrase of that nature, that is where I am coming from. I know that not all of my listeners per se are Christians, but this is the perspective that I am coming from and this is how I am presenting it. So just as a heads up, I'm not assuming that everybody has the same beliefs as me or as the early church, but um, since that is where I come from, that is how I will be be wording things. So to begin with, Christians are called to be disciples and to disciple others. We are called to a life of discipleship. We are called to follow Christ and imitate his life, following both his and his father's teachings. There are a few short verses that I want to pull out in regards to this to kind of set the stage here. So the first is John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The next is Matthew 4, 19-22. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee and their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The next is Matthew 10.38, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Corinthians 11.1 Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So those are all references in some way or another to discipleship. When Yeshua says that, quote, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, end quote. This covers the aspect of having God's principles being the ruling framework of our lives. This means to study the word and abide in it, as well as to live according to it. Yeshua lived this out, and we are to follow his example. We will also be following his example of sacrifice and suffering, as was mentioned multiple times in some of those verses. We are not of this world, and therefore this world will hate us and persecute us. It did the same for him, but if we are not willing to bear the burden or follow in his footsteps, then we are not worthy of him. This is all in reference to our role as disciples of Christ. And this definitely references a lot of the stuff that we talked about in last in the last episode about the fact that the world will hate you. The world will want you to die. The world will want you to go away. They have animosity towards those who are members of the kingdom of God. Now, our role of making disciples is not necessarily a different role, but more of an extension of being a disciple ourselves. So in living out God's principles, we are necessarily reaching out to others and being light to them. 
We are showing them and teaching them how to imitate Christ through our own actions that are seen by the world. You can go back to the references in earlier episodes about being the light. That is our purpose, our meaning as human beings, especially as Christian human beings, is to be the light to the world, to be an example to others of the principles of God, of the natural order and living that out. I'm going to read a few more verses that carry us into this next topic here. And the first would be Mark 12, 28 through 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Yeshua answered, the most important is, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The next is Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. An interesting aspect of that verse that I've never caught before, it might be a translation thing, is that it says one word, and it's not literally a word. It's a statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That would go back to one of the first episodes in this season where I talked about what the Hebrew word for word means, as well as the Greek word for word, talking about logos and also talking about debar. And I guess that's kind of a reference to that, which is kind of cool. So moving on, in John 13, verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Then Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that would be the last one to cover in this little bit here. And it brings up some points of applying some of this stuff. So if you notice, Yeshua didn't say, go and establish a new religion. He didn't say, go and convert as many people as possible. He didn't say, go and set up an institutionalized church. And I'm not saying that having a church is bad, nor am I saying that converting people is a negative thing or breaking away from Judaism is wrong. I'm simply pointing out that the key focus and command is to make disciples. That is the main point. This usually does involve having people convert to Christianity with a support group of other believers. That would be the church. But Yeshua desires us to have these as aspects of reaching our goal, not the goal itself. The goal itself is to make disciples. A disciple is much more than a shallow convert or church attendee. It also has two options for who is the one discipling versus who is being discipled. And I believe that both of these options apply simultaneously. So believers are all disciples of Yeshua, and believers are to create more disciples of him. Also, believers are to disciple one another, and as non-believers come to faith, they are to be discipled by more mature believers, hence making disciples. This is the pattern that we see here, and it's not just one or the other. It's that each individual person is a disciple and is discipling others. It's both of those roles. So the Jews had a process of discipleship that gives a little bit of insight into following Yeshua with us as disciples and him as our teacher or rabbi, and it is through his example of his life that we have recorded. Now, you have to tie in some of the uh, Jewish culture and the way that they handled things and their tradition. Their practice revolved around what they would call shmikah, and if one sought to be a teacher— they would first need a rabbi willing to take them under their authority and teach them directly. Now, at this point in time, the rabbi would be the one with shmikah, or the authority and ability and right to teach under their own merit and to teach uh, things that they have learned themselves. The initiate 
would follow and learn from the rabbi while studying the scriptures and commentaries. And to begin with, any time the initiate would teach, they could only teach the same content they had learned directly from their teacher. Once the initiate was ready for the official status of teacher, there would be two other rabbis who, along with the discipling rabbi, making three rabbis in total, they would lay hands on the individual initiate and confirm that he was now a teacher himself. And at this point, the new teacher had shmikah themselves and could teach according to their own understanding and revelation. They then had the authority to do so and the training to do so. And this was their process in creating rabbis. That's how you would become a rabbi, how you would become a teacher. It was following this process and this authority of being able to teach under your own authority would be what is referred to as shmikah. There are some references to this in the scriptures. You have Matthew 7, 28 through 29. When Yeshua had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at the way he taught. For he was not instructing them like their Torah teachers, but as one who had authority himself. Then Mark 1, 27-28. They were all so astounded that they began asking each other, What is this? A new teaching? One with authority behind it? He gives orders even to the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And the news about him spread quickly through the whole region of the Galil. And so Yeshua taught as though he had authority, or shmikah, but it was an authority, or a shmikah, beyond what the teachers of the day had. So he is following in this pattern, but as people were saying in those earlier verses, it seemed like it was something beyond that. It wasn't just the shmikah that their rabbis were receiving from a few other rabbis. This was something more. This was something bigger. This was something more powerful. Yeshua had a direct connection with his father and had an earthly connection to John the Baptist, who had laid hands on him with confirmation from God and his spirit, making three in total, at the time of Yeshua's baptism just prior to his teaching ministry. So Jesus went through this similar process of becoming a rabbi, at least this aspect of it, where, as I said earlier, in order to become a rabbi, you would study under another rabbi, you would learn, and then him and two other rabbis would lay hands on you, three people in total laying hands on you, and you would receive your shmikah. Well, with Yeshua, when he was baptized, he had been, well, It is possibly insinuated, I'm not going to read something that isn't there, many people believe that he had been learning from and in a way being discipled by John the Baptist. He had very similar teachings. A lot of what uh, is said that they were both preaching at the time were repentance and the kingdom of heaven. Those were the two things that John the Baptist and Yeshua were focused on at the beginning of both of their ministries. And then you also have the other aspect of, uh, at least an inference, also not directly stated, that Yeshua was learning from his heavenly father and probably building that relationship and learning through that direct connection being discipled from the father, from God. And so you've got these two options for how Yeshua was being discipled himself. And then at this time, just before he starts teaching and using this shmikah and possibly gaining this shmikah, at least in an earthly sense, he had three, in a sense, entities laying hands on him at his baptism, where you had John the Baptist, you had God the Father, and it says uh, the Spirit of God descended like a dove. So it would be three and either God the Father or John the Baptist, or maybe a mix of both, we, we don't really know, but one of those was potentially the source that Yeshua was being discipled by, that was his rabbi in a sense, and the other two were the comfort the confirmationists, I don't know what that word would be there, but the people who were confirming Yeshua's Shmikah, they all laid hands on him, confirmed him, and after this, he then was teaching with authority. 
Yeshua then began this process again with his own teaching and discipling, and after his death and resurrection, he called his followers to imitate him, to teach, to lead, to love, to disciple others. And this is the pattern. So again, what he said in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is something that he did. We are to imitate him, and he is directly telling us that discipleship is one of the main aspects of the life of a Christian. As a random side note here, I do want to say that this entire episode is not going to be a Bible study. So hang in there if this is not necessarily what you're interested in. You do need this background so that I can make the comparisons and parallels at the later half of the episode to agorism and modern things that are more secular. So with this aspect of discipleship, when we become disciples of Christ, we are baptized by an elder of the church in the name of and accepted by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this would be three in total, and in the presence of the body of the church, which is also three in total, if you look more broadly, the elder, the trinity, and the church. Or you could say the trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So either way, there are three that are giving confirmation onto an individual Christian in modern times, and after that point, they are then considered to be Christian, and they are considered to be disciples of Christ, and they would then have the goal of discipling others as well as they are learning themselves. So we then are to continuously be disciples of Christ, always learning, always growing through sanctification and teaching, but also to continue this pattern by making new disciples of other individuals, discipling them, teaching them, bringing them under the discipleship of Christ. We now have shmikah, or the authority to teach. We have received the Spirit who aids in our learning, understanding, and reveals new things to us as we go. We also have new experiences and can share aspects of our own lives with others. Keep in mind that true wisdom doesn't only lie in knowledge, understanding, and experience. It must be put into effect through action. Therefore, the action statement, go and make disciples. Another relevant verse would come from 1 John 2.27. As for you, the messianic anointing you received from the Father remains in you, so that you have no need for anyone to teach you. On the contrary, as his messianic anointing continues to teach you about all things and is true, not a counterfeit, so just as he taught you, remain united with him. So one of the points of that would be that we have received shmikah in a sense. We don't necessarily need anyone else to teach us. We have this direct connection with God, and we are able to then be able to disciple others. And we are continuing to be discipled ourselves. Now, another person that I'll reference here that I have gotten a lot out of would be Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy points out oftentimes that this lifestyle of Christianity not only results in treasures in heaven, but also here on earth. We don't have to solely find solace in the everlasting effects of our actions in the afterlife. There is a better life to be achieved here on earth with earthly benefits we will reap in the life here and now. Tolstoy directs much of his religious writings on how to live action, obedience, and earthly rewards. He says oftentimes that following Yeshua's teachings will bring us joy, peace, wisdom, and security. So oftentimes, believers have less troubles in their lives in comparison to worldly individuals as a reaction to their love, service, and honesty. This is One of the main points in my favorite Tolstoy book, that would be My Religion. I would highly recommend that one. And he focuses a lot on the Sermon on the Mount. That is kind of his big section of scripture that he holds to a lot, and I would agree with that. Now, I don't agree with all of his theology. He comes to some points that I think are wrong, personally, but a lot of what he has to say is very 
helpful and insightful, and he brings up a lot of good points. Tolstoy was also an anarchist, so he has that going for him as well. Now, getting into a few verses that would back up this perspective, you have Romans 13, which is one that many should be familiar with if we are studying these types of things. Uh, This would be, for rulers are no terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then simply do what is good, and you will win his approval. For he is God's servant, there for your benefit. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, because it is not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword. For he is God's servant, there is an avenger to punish wrongdoers." And this would be Romans 13, verses 3 through 4. The next comes from Proverbs 22. The dread of a king is like when a lion roars. He who makes him angry commits a life-threatening sin. And then the next is a conglomeration of verses from Proverbs 19, verses 12, 16, 23, and 29. A king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. He that keepeth the commandment keepeth his own soul, but he that despiseth his ways shall die. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. Judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the backs of fools. And as you probably guessed, that was from the King James Version, going a little old school there. I switch up the versions. I like the complete Jewish Bible is one I use a lot. But if I want something stated in more modern language that doesn't have the Hebrew attached to it, like a lot of times the complete Jewish Bible uses the words, um, they use people's real names. So you've got Yeshua or Yitzhak or different Hebrew names like this that you probably wouldn't know who they were. Um, And so that kind of creates an issue. Even disciples is Talmudim. And so it doesn't translate those if it's a Hebrew word that doesn't directly translate. So that's a little interesting, but I do like that. But if I'm trying to avoid that and go modern, I do the ESV version. And then if I want to go uh, to something that is pretty true to the original and uh, is old school, then I usually go King James version. So little side note there on how I do things as far as verses are concerned. But to review those verses there, we'll start off with the one that most people might have a bit of an issue with, especially non-Christians, and that would be the Romans 13 verse about how rulers are of no terror to good conduct but to bad, and they hold the power of the sword not in vain but as God's servant to punish wrongdoers. And I think we all realize that this is not completely true. There are a few different interpretations of this, and at some point I will go over Romans 13. We will get there eventually. But until then, I will at least say that you have two possibilities for this that are, in my opinion, the most likely. One would be that this is the ideal for a government. If a government is falling in line with the role that God has appointed for it, then it will be doing this. This is the way it is to operate. This is the way that God allows it to operate. And the other possibility would be that this is a very generalized statement, that in general, someone who lives a good and moral life is going to not bring the wrath of the government on their heads nearly as much as someone who lives a sinful life that is full of doing evil things. And that is also true. So I I actually would say that both of those two things are true, that God does have a role for governments and kings, even though he clearly says that they are a rejection of himself and not his ideal. But there is a role that they do play, and part of that role is as an institution to punish sinful people. But they are supposed to only do that aspect of that role, although we know that that is not actually the way that people do things, and that's not the way that it actually works out. But it is, in general, the case that someone who is living a life according to the natural order or according to biblical principles, and they are loving others, they are being kind to others, they are not 
doing anything against other people, it actually is very unlikely that they're bringing the wrath of the state down on their heads. Now, there are times when there are some direct conflicts and times when that happens, but they are a lot less likely to have run-ins with the state than someone who is often lying and stealing and uh, committing violence and all these kinds of things. Those are the people that are much more likely to bring the wrath of the state down on their head. So I would say that that is a true statement from that perspective. Now, it definitely gets into this in the Proverbs verses where it talks about how someone who makes the king angry commits a life-threatening sin, and that would be true. And it talks about some other aspects of that in those later verses. But that's, that's one perspective. That's kind of the Tolstoyan perspective, and there is merit to that. There is scripture to back that up, and it is true. At the same time, and while it seems like a contradiction, it really isn't, Yeshua teaches that believers will be hated, persecuted, and at times prosecuted even to death. So obviously, not all do-gooders will avoid trouble. On one hand, even in times of persecution and trial, the believer still has peace, joy, and comfort through their faith and relationship with God. Paul's many letters from prison would attest to this over and over. On the other hand, Suffering also has personal benefits. How could we ever improve without resistance? Trials allow us to learn, grow, and improve ourselves. This is the idea of lifting weights in the gym. You break down your muscles, and they build back better and bigger and stronger. You know, build back better. We won't go there. But uh, that is the idea of gaining muscle in the gym. You're breaking down your muscles, and through that trial and struggle that they have gone through, and when they have been broken down, as they build back, they build back stronger and bigger and better. So this is the idea also with us as humans. As we go through trials in our lives, we get broken down to an extent. And as we recover from that and learn from that, we come back on the other side better than we were beforehand. They also give us the opportunity to reach individuals we would never have reached otherwise. So we gain the opportunity to prove the faith that we have, to show the effects of God's transforming power, and to serve as a witness and allusion to Christ's suffering. So in effect, we will at times avoid suffering and at times experience it. But in both instances, we will be better off for it and can thank God through it. It is all a part of being a disciple of Christ while discipling others through our lives. So this is the way it goes. There is a set of verses that kind of talks about some of this. Uh, Another warning, King James Version again here. But it is Matthew 10. Uh, The first few verses are 17 through 22, and then I'll skip to 34 through 38. So it says, But beware of men. They will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given to you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. I'll comment on that. Well, I'll go ahead and comment on that now. That that one can be a something that's a bit of a turnoff for people. So he's saying this is Yeshua speaking. He's saying that he came to divide up families and put people against each other, and that a result of his coming and teaching will be that family members, even uh, parents and children, will have the others put to death for the sake of his teaching and his name. And this is not a good thing, but. 
in context of what we have been talking about, this is the idea of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. The kingdom of God, the followers of Christ, Christians versus the world. That's what I talked about in the previous episode, that the world is against you. They are not only against you, they want you dead. Like This is an actual uh, consequence of this division between those that choose to follow God's ways and those that choose not to. There is, is not a lot of intertwining there. Those are two totally different worlds. And because of this, you're going to have these conflicts. And part of what he came to do was to make that clear division so that those who follow him will follow him more truly and more fully and will be more defined and those that don't the same. I'll go ahead and go to the next verse. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so it's this idea of relying on God will be an example to others that it is God who is the foundation. It is God who has the power. It is God that is doing the good, not me myself. So if I am shown to be weak, but I am obviously relying on him and able to do things through him, then that strength is more obviously not from me, but it is from God. So it is that example that is a good thing. So that is why he is content in his weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because in these times, he relies more on God. And that is why when he is weak, and he has more reliance on God, who is much stronger than he is, when I am weak, I am strong. And that is the deal there. And it says, um, when he's referencing, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, that is the deal here, that God's power is shown in the weakness of men. And when you see men's weaknesses overcome through the power of God, it is even more of a statement to the power of God that these things have happened. And that's an aspect of grace would be you deserve one thing, but you don't suffer it, at least on the the negative there. You deserve punishment, but you are given forgiveness. And you might deserve, uh, so to say, if you are weak, then you might deserve that weakness to play out in a certain way. But instead, God can step in and use that and insert his strength and through grace, allow you to still be strong through his power and then pointing more people to him. And so that is an aspect of kind of what we have been talking about here. The final verse that I wanted to cover in this episode is 1 Peter 3, 8 through 18. This is a bit of a long one, but it has a lot of references here. So finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, quote, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, end quote. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed." Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, be put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So this is talking about some really good stuff here, especially at the end where it talks about 
suffering for the sake of good, that that is a much better example than suffering for the case of evil. You're not going to reach other people and be much of a disciple or discipler if you are suffering for evil, if you're doing evil. That's not really a good example to be setting there, and that's not going to be a good look for you to others. However, if you are doing good and yet you are still slandered, then they are the ones who will be put to shame. So it's uh, the quote here would be, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Well, obviously, if you are doing the right thing, but you are getting persecuted or prosecuted for the right thing, and it is clear that you are doing the right thing, then that actually bolsters your message and your example. That's the idea of someone like a Martin Luther King or a Gandhi or Yeshua. A lot of these big times in history when people have been brought up, you think of martyrs in general, it is because they are obviously doing something that is in line with a moral position and are unjustly being treated in this way. And so when this is happening, the case for morality, the case for the right thing is made ever more strongly. And so this is a good thing. And it's going back to this idea that um, governments are supposed to punish the evil and reward the good. Uh, this is part of it because it, it makes that contrast so clear if the state is the one involved in these activities. So if I am doing the wrong thing, if I am committing evil and the state comes down on me, then it's kind of hard to uh, say that the state is doing bad. It's like, well, no, I mean, they're actually punishing you for doing something you shouldn't do anyway. So that kind of makes sense. Whereas if I am doing the right thing, and it is obvious, everybody knows inherently that governments should be good to those that do good. And that is uh, directly stated in those verses I read earlier from Romans 13. Uh, people know this. And so if I am doing good, it is expected that I won't be persecuted or prosecuted by the state. But if the state does prosecute me for doing good, then it makes that contrast even more clear that the state is the one who is the evil institution, not me. And even more so when people actually see that play out. So to kind of wrap up some of this aspect of the purely Christian view of discipling and discipleship, I would say that we as Christians have many reasons to live out our faith. Our call to follow, to be disciples, to teach, and to disciple is one of an earthly goal and a heavenly goal, an earthly reward and a heavenly reward, a practical aspect and one of conscience. And that will be something I'll bring up a lot later when we get into Romans 13, this practical aspect and an aspect of conscience. The kingdom of man is a corruption of this discipleship model. So whereas with God's ways, we follow God and Yeshua's teachings, we are accepted by the Father through the Son and with the Holy Spirit and live a life that brings joy and peace with a focus on God and leading others to Him, the world's way is to follow successful humans and secular teaching, be accepted by the masses through popularity within our circle of acquaintances, and live a life that brings wealth and power with a focus on ourselves and bringing others under our control. Um, hopefully you can see that stark contrast there. So um, with God's model, we follow God and Yeshua's teachings, and the world's we are following successful humans and secular teachings. And then in God's way, we are accepted by the Father through the Son and with the Holy Spirit, whereas the secular way, the world's way, we are accepted by the masses through popularity within our circle of acquaintances. And then as we move on, we live a life that brings joy and peace with a focus on God and leading others to Him. Whereas the world's way is to live a life that brings wealth and power with a focus on ourselves and bringing others under our control. So there is a stark difference here. One is a perversion of the other. You have the natural order, the light side, the dark side, and this is the way things play out. And this topic of discipleship and discipling and being discipled, it follows all of these same things. So to bring this back into the context of 
using this example, this theology, this strategy um, for our modern lives under our current conditions and under our current state that we live under, I think that it is a worthy model to apply to an extent in a secular way. Now, again, I've mentioned in other episodes that you do have to be careful when you are talking about religious things and then trying to apply them secularly. In general, we are not applying Christianity without God. That's not what I'm trying to do here. It's looking at a strategy and a philosophy and some aspects that I would say are part of God's fundamental principles, part of the natural order, and applying them to anyone's life, that that is a good thing. It's like reading Proverbs and applying those to your life, whether you are Christian or not. And so, again, it gets a little dicey sometimes, so bear with me on that. But that's what I am trying to do. That is my attempt, is to pull out some of these things, because I would much rather model a secular movement on something that is principled and that follows the natural order than to try to do it totally apart from that and model it after a secular way and something that is not in line with that same ideology. So that's where we're going here. Now, I would say that this is one of the key differences between, let's say, libertarians and agorists. So the idea here would be that a lot of libertarians, they know a lot, they have a lot of knowledge, they have a lot of understanding. But like I mentioned earlier, uh, those are very different than actual wisdom and the more important aspect of action. And putting those things into action is the important thing. It doesn't really matter a whole lot if you have a lot of this knowledge if you're not applying it. And that's uh, some people would define wisdom in that way. I don't necessarily do it, but some people would say that wisdom is applying that knowledge and understanding. And there is an extent of that that I would agree with. But the applying and the action step is what agorists are doing. That That is agorism. It is participating in the counter-economy. It is applying that. And in doing so, most people are not just going to jump right in and know everything that there is to do and know how all this works and know all these strategies and all these things. They need to build these skills. They need to build their knowledge. They need to build relationships and networks and community. And that is where something akin to a discipleship model makes a lot of sense. Because when someone is coming in fresh to a movement like this, they really need somebody or some people to bring them in, to help them, to teach them, to show them, to disciple them, in a sense. And their goal, and the goal for everyone in the agorist movement, is for agorism to spread, for the counter-economy to grow, to get other people involved in this movement. So it's not only that I learn about agorism and how to apply it and uh, study or learn from other people that are in this movement, but I also want to bring in new people into this movement and help agorism and the counter-economy grow and help to grow these alternative systems that are not a part of the same immoral systems that are dominant in today's society. And so in doing so, you have that both of those aspects of discipleship, of being discipled by others, as well as discipling others yourself. And it's very akin to that model. And once you have gotten involved with the movement, you have studied from other people, and you learn and understand things, and you're starting to apply things, then that is when you would uh, have something akin to shmikah, this this kind of authority to teach others about it. You've got to understand it first yourself, and you've got to be able to apply it yourself. You have to be doing it and putting it into action yourself. And once you are doing that and have shown that, then you can show that to others as well, which is the ultimate goal. Another parallel that is very pertinent to me would be this aspect of doing good and being persecuted for good. So while with pure agorism, the idea is the counter-economy, which is everything that is, uh, in a way, illegal, but not a part of any red markets or pink markets, um, I would just say that 
it makes a lot more sense to me to be in the gray realm than the black realm. And I would definitely agree that the red realm is nowhere to be near or to touch in any way. But when you are in the black realm, there are a lot of people that would view that activity as immoral. So something like prostitution or uh, using cocaine or lots of different things like this that you may not be hurting another person per se, and it may all be voluntary. And so from that morality, it fits with uh, being counter-economic activity or being a part of this agorist philosophy. But many people view those things as immoral. And if the state comes down on you for those activities, a lot of people aren't going to have a lot of sympathy for you. They are going to view that as the state doing what it's supposed to do. It's punishing those who do evil. It's punishing people who act immorally as is laid out in Romans 13. And so uh, that's not going to win a lot of people over. That is not necessarily going to uh, be this example and this light to others of something that is a better way to live, a better uh, set of systems to live in and to live under. Whereas if you are doing good things. If you are doing things that most people consider moral activities, if you're operating in this gray market where it's not necessarily, and ideally not at all, illegal. Like homeschooling is a good example that I go to a lot where it is not illegal for me to homeschool my kids. But in doing so, I am pulling them out of the public indoctrination centers, and I am pulling them out of these mainstream systems, and I am bringing them into a family culture and a homeschooling culture that is much more in line with what we would consider uh, moral behavior or the natural order. And so it is agorist in a way, although it is not illegal. And in doing so, if I get persecuted and prosecuted for that choice of how to educate my own children, most people would view that as an injustice. And that would actually get people more on my side. I would be, be viewed more in the pattern of a martyr than if I was a prostitute involved in voluntary actions of that nature and got prosecuted for it. I would not typically be viewed as a martyr in that case. So the other aspect of this is highlighting the contradistinction between the immorality of the state and the morality of the natural order. And the way to highlight that in the starkest contrast and something that is very clear and loud is to, number one, put that into action, let other people see it, and number two, to be persecuted for it. Those are the two things that really help in pushing this uh, this differentiation between these two ways of living, the state and the modern culture, cancel culture, the church of woke, all of these different things, statism, all of this is contrary to the natural order. It's all contrary to voluntarism. It's all contrary to the nap. And because of this, we want to make a sharp distinction between their ways and our ways. And that is one thing that we are doing in putting these things into action. We are actually living a life that is under this more moral umbrella, this ideological umbrella of voluntarism, so to say. And for those of us who are Christians, I would say that this is Christianity. We are living out our Christian faith in these principles of God. And in doing so, we are showing those as an example to others. Others can see how our kids act and how they are as far as their learning goes and what they have learned, what they know, what they're interested in, how they do their schooling, all this kind of stuff. Um, also, with our health, we should be healthier people. We have other options for treating things and preventing things through natural, holistic means. We have lots of other ways that we do things very differently. And in doing so, people see that and see that that is a better way to be. That is a better way to live. That is healthier. That is cheaper. That is something that brings more joy and more peace. And therefore, that is something attractive to most people. 
if then we are doing these things and living in these ways and then end up being prosecuted for them or persecuted for them, uh, that really puts the prosecutors to shame. They are the ones that will be viewed as being in an unjust position, in a shameful position. They would be the ones in the wrong, regardless of what their legal status is, regardless of whether, you know, you went to jail or you got fined for something or whatever the case may be, it will be very clear that what is legal is not necessarily moral. And we will make that distinction very clear. Now, that distinction can be made clear and hopefully only gets made clear through the example of living out moral ways of living and interacting and building community. Hopefully that's it. But if there is persecution or prosecution, I would just highly, 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 I can't highly recommend it enough that that prosecution come against something that is very largely viewed as moral and just. So if I am doing moral and just activities, but I'm prosecuted for it, that's what I want to be prosecuted for, is something where I am in the right morally, and regardless of what this one statute says in Section B13A or whatever it is, um, regardless of that... I am in a morally superior position, and that is clear to everyone. Whereas this movement gets a bad rap and will get a bad rap when people are busted for things that are generally considered immoral and things that are not bringing about these positive aspects of the goals of peace and joy and community and these types of things. Drugs are a good example here as well. I personally believe that... uh, People should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting anyone else. It's all voluntary. So if you want to do drugs, then go for it. Like that's that's your choice. That's your free will choice. I don't recommend it. I don't think you should. Um, I don't think changing your state of mind is something that is very wise. Um, and the possible exception there would be using drugs for specific reasons, whether that be medical or otherwise. Uh, there are times when that does make a lot more sense. But as far as recreational drug use, especially harder drugs, on one hand, I would say that from a voluntarist perspective, that should not be illegal. People shouldn't be getting thrown in a cage for doing that. If they're not hurting anyone else, they're just making their own decision. They're doing it in the evening at home and going to bed. Like, you know, that that shouldn't be a legal issue. But what I would say is that someone who is, let's say, a crack addict and um, they're able to be a crack addict without actually harming other people or their property, while that's not necessarily something that should be illegal from a voluntarist perspective, that's not a good thing for that person and that person's life or those around them. They are not... Uh, um, I, I can't say for sure, but um, I am pretty sure, and I think most would agree, they are probably not benefiting those around them as much as they could be if they weren't a crack addict. And they are probably not spreading the message of peace, love, and joy as much as they could be if they were not a crack addict. So if they get uh, prosecuted for being a crack addict, they're not going to draw a whole lot of sympathy. And even if they're not prosecuted for it, their message, their example is not one that's going to be drawing a lot of people into the movement because it's not a very good example. People don't really want to be like that crack addict. And so um, this is where I would, I guess, kind of uh, make the clear distinction between having a libertine attitude where it is good to do anything you want to do and whatever feels good and having a liberty-oriented attitude of people have the free will to do what they want, and then taking that a step further into the Christian realm of there is right and wrong, good and bad, moral and immoral, light and dark, and we need to be on the side of the light side of the natural order. Although everyone in the world should have the free will to do and choose as they please. And that would be my stance. And I think that if as a movement, let's say agorism, is something that shifts more into this Christian agorist perspective, whether it be Christian per se or not. Um, my ideal, I would say that Christianity is 
agorist. As far as if you actually applied Christianity to today's world, a lot of that behavior would be agorist in nature, but it would be in this vein that I'm talking about where it's not necessarily illegal, but it is breaking from the systems and bringing the reliance from the systems of the world to the community of the church. And so I would say that's where things should shift. But you know, that's on the Christian side. On the secular side, it should be something that is akin to that model where the focus is on that uh, morality and on that ideology and on that tradition of liberty and free will and focusing on having the moral high ground and in doing so, propagating the movement even more and making a good name for it. I think that does wrap up everything that I wanted to cover for this episode. So I am just going to end here. We will pick up next time talking about uh, secular religion. And so the, the plan, at least, was the religion of statism. I know I've covered that to an extent in at least one previous episode, but I think I'm going to cover that again and from a different angle, as well as maybe the religion of scientism and maybe a little bit about the Church of Woke, um, all of these different secular religions that I have referenced in the show in the past, but that uh, need to be drawn out more and brought into the context of this season. So, and I, I guess this is where I do make the plug that this podcast is intended to be listened to in its entirety from start to finish because all of these ideas build on themselves. If you heard me reference the nap and you don't know what the nap is, that's because you're not caught up and you don't, you haven't listened to these episodes. You should be very clear on what that is. And same goes for the natural order. If you haven't listened to the natural order episodes, that's like the foundation of this whole season. So you got to go back and at least listen to that. And if I reference the Church of Woke, but you haven't listened to the Vin Armani interviews and that whole series and all the elaborations in between, you are definitely missing out. Definitely missing out. And there are references in those about, you know, some aspects of corruption and some random things that that I'd covered in season one, that if you had not listened to that, then you're, you're just out of the loop. You're not going to get as much out of it. And thank you for listening either way. I mean, I appreciate it. And you're going to get stuff out of it, even just listening to random episodes as they come out. But you're missing out on a lot if you are not going back and listening to the rest of the podcast. It is intended to be more like an audiobook than a random weekly conversation, if that makes sense. If you have not done so already, please do leave a rating or a review. You can go to iTunes, you can go to Spotify, you can go to any of these places, even if that's not where you listen to your podcasts. Some podcast players don't give the option for clicking on the stars to give a review or to write a review. And so you might have to go to one of these other sites in order to do so. And if you are willing to take that slight extra step and take, you know, 30 seconds to two minutes out of your day and do so, it's not a whole lot, but that sacrifice of yours would be something that would be greatly appreciated by me personally and something that would benefit the show and get the word out there even more. And so I greatly appreciate those of you who have done that. I haven't actually checked reviews or ratings recently, so I'll check that if there's any new, then I'll give you guys a shout out and thank you personally for those. And so with that, I guess I just want to say thank you specifically to the financial supporters of the show who make all of this possible and keep me from having to fund it all myself. So thank you very much, those on Patreon, those on Subscribestar, anyone who's donated cryptocurrency. Again, you have to let me know if you're doing the cryptocurrency route. The addresses and different coins are available in the show notes and on the website. So feel free to follow that and donate directly. But let me know. That way I can make sure you get any of the perks associated with that. So if you have any questions, comments, anything, send me an email, send me a message, whatever. You can follow me on Twitter at FoundationsPC or email at rfoundations at protonmail.com. We got the website, which would be rfoundations.podbean.com. All of these different ways to connect. Please do so. Thank you very much for listening. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye.